Good morning, church. Y'all having a good Sunday so far this morning? I hope so. It's so good to be with you. I've been looking forward to this series for quite a few weeks, and I'm, I'm glad to be preaching. I don't know, uh, in the 8 o'clock service, I had a bird up here with me, believe it or not. Is he gone? Did somebody get the bird? Okay, he's gone. He's out of here. Well, that was my sermon prop. So uh, we did have a bird in the building, but not now. Today, a new series. Uh, we're calling the series, I Am. And the point of the series is that you might have a closer walk with your God. I hope you want that. If nobody here wants that, I'm going to be preaching to the pews today. But I hope you come ready to have a closer walk with God today or to start a walk with God if you have not started your walk with God. Here's how we want to start the series. I'm going to introduce you to a man named Mitch Schilling. This is how we're kicking things off. Mitch lives in Yukon, Oklahoma. He's from Pampa, Texas, and he's really proud of where he's from. You know how Texans are. All right, he's from Pampa, Texas. He loves his heritage. Uh, in Yukon, Oklahoma, he works at A&E Grill. He's the general manager of this restaurant. They serve uh, prime rib. Uh, they pride themselves on their crisp French fries and the 11 TVs stationed strategically all around the restaurant so you can watch sports the whole time you're eating your, your steak and your potatoes. He's married to Jessica. She's a NICU nurse, and Mitch loves his wife, and he's a supportive husband to this nurse. When Nurses Week comes around and it's time to celebrate nurses, he's all about it. He's the first guy to promote his wife and the good things she's doing. They have a daughter. Her name is Evelyn. They adore Evelyn, and Evelyn adores her mother. Like, if you asked Evelyn, what is it that you want to be when you grow up? Do you know what she would say? She said, I want to be just like mommy. And they're a Paw Patrol family. Um, if you know about Paw Patrol, it's on in the house a lot. The favorite animal, so if you say, Evelyn, what's your favorite animal? She's going to say, Chase, the police dog in Paw Patrol, is her favorite animal in all the world. Um, Oklahoma City Thunder basketball is going to be on in their house. They love the Oklahoma City Thunder. Mitch leans politically to the right. And he's been kind of known for stirring up a little controversy uh, during this administration. He's kind of that guy that will make the conversations a little bit uncomfortable politically. Uh, that's kind of how he is. He's a hardworking guy, hat-wearing guy. He loves it when his dad comes over because he and his dad will put Evelyn on the zero-turn tractor as a photo op and send her around the yard. But the mom won't do that, but he and his dad will do that. It's kind of a fun thing they share. Now, let me tell you the best part, how I met Mitch. I called my wife last week. I said, honey, I want you just to throw out a random guy's name. Make it up. Somebody we don't know. She said, okay, Mitch Schilling. I went to Facebook. I searched Mitch Schilling in the search bar. I clicked the first guy's name. I read his profile for 30 minutes. Boom. That's Mitch Schilling. I'm introducing you today, right now. I was expecting a response. I didn't know how you would respond. Uh, I don't know Mitch. Never met him. We've never talked. He's got his interests. He has his life. He doesn't even know I exist. Uh, I didn't befriend him. I just started reading. I haven't shared my profile with him. I just read his profile. He kind of does his thing in life. I do my thing. The sum total of our relationship is this. He's posted some information. I've read it. That's the sum total of our relationship. And you know where I'm going. I'm a preacher. I'm about to spiritualize this. 
What if the sum total of your relationship, quote unquote, relationship with God is that he's posted something and you've read it and you've gotten good enough to talk about it long enough you could fool a whole crowd of people that you actually know him? What if that was it? And you know, it's so interesting because Jesus takes this massive effort to take that which is unknown and make it known to you, that which is heavenly, bring it right here down to the earth. He says about himself, and we're going to be getting into some of this. He says about himself, if you have seen me, if anyone has seen me, you've seen the Father. So you have to ask yourself, why would Jesus make this great effort to make God known? I know the answer. So you could just talk about God long enough to fool everybody that you actually know him, right? That's the point. No, that's not the point. No, it's that you would walk with him, know him as he really is, be loved by him and love him, call him by name, you know his interactions with man and with woman. You know what he's like. Jeremiah says, if you had to pick one thing to boast about in your life, you get to pick one thing, biblically speaking, to be proud of, to boast about. And this is the one thing you get to pick, that you truly know God. And you understand that he is the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love, righteousness, and justice. Now, practically speaking, it's probably not wise to walk around and actually brag about that all day long. But Jeremiah is making this point. This is why you live. Know God. Walk with God. Truly know him. That's where we're going in this series. And we're turning to the Gospel of John to see how Jesus takes that which is unknown and makes it known. And how he so clearly reveals God to us. We're going to be studying I am statements of Jesus. There are more of them than just seven. Although if you're you're a Bible student, you've probably heard of the the great seven I am statements. On the little screen uh, or the big screen, you'll see um, eight icons. There are nine or ten even you could study in the Gospel of John. Seven of them have, (laughs) I don't know how to say this word, um, in the pulpit of David Young. um, Metaphors um, attached to them. (laughs) I I, I was afraid of that all week, but there it is. Okay, so... um, But the first one we're starting with is not such a direct metaphor. It's um, a little bit different. And we're going to start with this in John 4 today. I want you to see how he makes God known. Now, if you're not totally bought into why we're doing a new series and why we're doing it this way, let me give you four more reasons why we must regularly study the person of Jesus as a congregation. Ready? Number one, over the last eight weeks, some of us, including me, have recommitted to Jesus, deepened our commitment to Jesus. For some of you, you've added this element. You've added, I will follow Jesus come what may. And if you've added that element, I'll remind you, the best way to seal a commitment to Jesus, to actually step into a new commitment to Jesus is to behold him and to look upon him and to listen to him again and be overwhelmed with what he's like and who he is. So I hope you do that. Secondly, There are so many distorted and fuzzy views of Jesus out there. We have to study him regularly. You ask yourself the question, which Jesus are we even talking about? Right? Because there's, uh, we're, we're approaching the holidays. There's holiday Jesus. Holiday Jesus makes no demands of your life, but he gives you lots of cool gifts and things to play with. Uh, there's traditional Jesus who cares a whole lot about how we do church but not a whole lot about being the church in a broken world. Uh, There's therapeutic Jesus who says, look in, don't look up, look in, find your true authentic self, feel good about that. He'll affirm whatever that self is like. There's Hollywood Jesus 
who doesn't care about your sexual ethic except that it makes you happy, not holy. There's American Jesus who can't see any difference between the United States of America and the kingdom of God, uses those terms interchangeably. There's relativist Jesus whose one truth is to not proclaim any particular truth so as to not offend those whose truth is that there isn't any truth in the world. Is he the Jesus we follow? I'm not saying any of these things to offend you. I'm saying them to raise the question, who's Jesus? What's he like? How would we even find out? Well, fortunately, there was a man named John who walked with Jesus, an eyewitness of Jesus, who records what he did and what he said. John said, if I recorded all of it, the whole world wouldn't even be able to contain it. But he's recorded something that you could believe in the real Jesus and find life. Thirdly, there are people that I'm preaching to right now who are unconvinced that Jesus is who he says he is. We use the word unconverted. I pray that you would listen in this series, that things would click and dots would connect for you. First, let me just commend you for listening if you're unconvinced that Jesus is who he says he is. We live in a day and age where nobody listens to anything that they don't already first agree with. So I applaud you for being here and for listening or watching online. But we're going to an eyewitness account of Jesus' life in history. We're not talking about what David Hunziker thinks about Jesus. John walked with him. And every time Jesus makes a difficult statement about himself, he follows it or he precedes it with a sign. So even if you're skeptical, you could believe on the testimony, the public witness that Jesus gave us these signs. I pray it helps you. And then fourthly, we've spent time, rightfully so, thinking about everything that's going on out there and how it affects us and how we have to interact with the changing culture. But I'm pointing us to think about what's going on in here congregationally, but also in here and in here. Can I ask you this question? Are you walking with God? Are you praying? Are you reading your Bible? Or have you gotten comfortable with like a Mitch Schilling type relationship with God? All right. Hopefully you're with me now. John 4. Let's start in verse 1. By the way, that was all introduction to the series. Please restart the timer. That doesn't count. Um, I've never introduced a series before. It was really fun, but I'm running out of time. So um, John chapter 4, John was called by Jesus to be an eyewitness. He, he writes this story. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, we had to go through Samaria. A few things about that. We're, we're jumping midstream here um, into a story. John has an intent to write this story, but let me just give you so far what he's already said about Jesus. Jesus is the word of God at the very beginning, was with God in the heavens. Two, Jesus is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the, the world. He's a better sacrificial system than the sacrificial system of old. Then he tells us that Jesus brings the new wine of the kingdom, better than ceremonial laws of ancient Israel. And then that Jesus to Nicodemus says, I can give you new birth, better than your first birth, into a new family, the family of God. And now he's starting a story to teach you that Jesus is the long-awaited King, the Messiah, and he has come to quench your soul's 
thirst. And you say, my soul is not thirsty. Yes, it is. And he's come to quench your soul's thirst. So he's going, uh, Jesus, from Judea back to Galilee. Jesus is from Galilee. He's doing it because the Pharisees are growing increasingly hostile towards him. That's because they're growing jealous and threatened by his ministry. The Pharisees are religious elites. Jesus is leaving Judea because he wants to lay his life down on his own time. No one takes my life, Jesus says. I lay it down on my own accord. And it's not time for that. So he's getting out of Judea. And John records a very interesting sentence, John 4, 4, that Jesus had to go to Samaria. Technically, that's not true. And the Bible is always true. So we have to dig a little deeper. There existed a route, Transjordan. Meaning, you could cross the Jordan while you're still in Judea, go through Perea up north, and then come back once you're past Samaria. So it's not a geographical necessity that Jesus would go through Samaria. That can't then be the meaning of John's had to in verse 4. So, It's not a geographical necessity. As a matter of fact, many rabbis would have taken the Transjordan route to avoid the uncleansing experience of walking through Samaria. The dirty, rotten, hated for over 500 years Samaria. But Jesus doesn't do it, and John's going to make clear why as we keep reading. Verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Some of you have heard this story dozens of times, and immediately you're like, it's noon. It's the heat of the day. This is a big part of the story. Um, If you haven't heard this story a lot, it's an honor for me to, to speak to you about it. The fact that it's noon means you would not have expected to come across anybody drawing water from the well. The the women who went to draw water went in the early morning to avoid the heat of the day. That's an important note. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, odd as that was in the heat of the day, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, we'll never find out if he got that drink uh, at the end of the story. I don't think he did. He's asking for one. John says his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. How many disciples does it take to buy lunch, guys? Twelve, I guess. Uh, The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John helps us again in the parentheses. For Jews, do not associate with Samaritans. Okay, this whole scene is happening between a real man, Jesus, a real Samaritan woman, at a real place. You can visit Jacob's well today. Jesus doesn't have any way to get water from the bottom of this well, so he's needing help from the Samaritan woman. But she's shocked that he would even ask for help, even speak to her. Why didn't he just turn around and leave the well when she came? Listen to two men, smarter guys than me who give a little bit of context as to just the sheer significance of this scene. Here's the first. His his name is D.A. Carson. He's a Bible scholar who kind of quickly gives you the history of Samaria so you know what's going on. After the Assyrians captured Samaria, this was the, the, the capital of the northern kingdom in 722, 721 B.C. They deported all the Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners. Those foreigners intermarried with the surviving Israelites. And they adhered to some form 
not the right form, not the complete form of their ancient religion. After the exile of the southern kingdom in Judah, when those exiles came back from Babylon, they viewed the Samaritans as a few very negative things. Children of political rebels and as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. How bad did it get? Well, here's one. 400 years before Jesus, the Samaritans erected a second place of worship when there was only to be one, a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. That's how corrupted the religious system had become in Samaria. Jesus had to go there. He's not a rabbi who's like okay with compromise and with a corrupted religious system and with the sheer deceit that the Samaritans are under. I hear people tell this story and it kills me because they say, see, he left rabbis in Judea who were not for Samaria. They were against it. They knew that this was an unholy practice and they stood against it. And here's Jesus and he's just cool with it. He's just cool with it, man. He doesn't care. Jesus loves everybody. He doesn't mind that this is all broken. That's no way to teach this story, guys. Jesus did not go to Samaria. Please get this. He did not go to Samaria to approve of sin. He went to Samaria to rescue a sinner. It's very important that we get that. And not just any sinner. She's notorious. William Barclay, uh, who, who some of your dads and granddads probably had and Grandmoms had these commentaries as they studied the Bible before we could just Google anything, you know. A lot of them had Williams, William Barclays. Here's what he says. The strict rabbis forbade a rabbi to even greet a woman in public. A rabbi might not even speak to his own wife or daughter or sister in public. And yet, here's Jesus speaking to this woman. Not only was she a woman, she was a woman of notorious character. No decent man, let alone a rabbi, would have been seen in her company. And yet Jesus spoke to her. To a Jew, this is an amazing story, says Barclay. Here was the Son of God, tired and weary and thirsty. Here's the holiest of men on the planet. And he's listening and understanding a sorry story from a sinful woman. Here, he says, and you saw this quote, here is the beginning of the universality of the gospel. Here is God so loving the world. Not in theory, he says, but in action. Not there to approve of sin, but he had a divine appointment at Jacob's well with this woman. She's confused by it all, obviously. Now that you have more history, you see why she says, how are you even talking to me right now? You shouldn't even be talking. Jesus says, actually, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? That kind of questioning comes up often in in John. Later in John 8, he's going to be asked, are you greater than Abraham? It's kind of a reality check. You know, what is it that you're really saying, Jesus? How great do you think you are? He says, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. 
Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Now the woman has to face the fact that he's not shying away from claiming to be better than Jacob. Have some other alternative source that could quench her thirst. So she says, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I don't know how much she understood. I would expect very little of what Jesus is trying to communicate because he's taking a physical reality and he's speaking of the living water of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. I can't imagine she fully comprehended that. But what I can see is that if you're trying to make a cell and you have somebody say, okay, go get it, I'm in. You just finish the cell. He's got a woman who's already saying yes to what he's offering. And Jesus is not okay. He's not there to get a superficial yes. Not a superficial follower, a superficial disciple. So he asks this question. He actually makes the next statement. And the next statement makes the conversation super awkward. She had literally come out in the heat of the day to avoid talking about the thing that he makes her talk about. Here he says, go get your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. I don't know why she said that, to dodge the conversation. She doesn't want to talk about it. Is she trying to come on to him? Is she working at the well? I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said. See, no one had told Jesus this truth. He just knew it. So here's the sign before his great statement. The sign is a word of knowledge as a prophet could know about you what you didn't tell the prophet. She says, sir, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Many commentators think she's changing the subject to avoid the topic of her own unfulfilled life, an unclean life. Possibly, I think she's also very curious about this. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Listen to this line, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We've come this far in the story to find out she's unfulfilled in her life. She's had six men. She cannot drink deeply enough. Then, because she's trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way, now she's unclean in her sin. She knows she's unclean. The whole city knows she's unclean. That's why she's out there by herself. And then she's the perfect trifecta because she's unfulfilled, she's unclean, and she's uncertain about God. She doesn't even know God. She doesn't even know which mountain to find God on. Let me, let me just help you see this. She's a woeful but true depiction of humanity without the Christ. It's amazing the contrast because in, in, in Matthew, I mean John 3, Jesus was just spending time with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a religious elite. His reputation's intact. He's a holy man. He's a good man. Now in John 4, he's with this woman who's quite the opposite. And, and I love that um, it's been said on many occasions, the contrast is for you to notice you can never rise too high, Nicodemus, for the need of salvation that Jesus offers, and you can never sink too low. 
Jesus extends to Nicodemus and to this woman the gospel, and both are welcome to it. She's a woeful depiction of humanity, but it's the wonderful grace of Jesus that's on display. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. At least she's got that right. The Messiah's going to come. He's going to clear it up. Whatever unfulfilled, unclean, even uncertain thing about God, he's going to make that right. And he says, I, the one speaking to you, I am. The he is added in English for clarity. He says, I am. Ego eimi in the Greek. I am. Using the exact same phraseology some of you are already onto. We're going to get to that. With this statement, he's, he's confirming, I'm the long-awaited king. You're right, I'm the Messiah. And he's hinting back to Exodus 3, where God tells Moses, if you're wondering what to say to the Egyptians, tell them, I am has sent me. So here Jesus is, revealing to us how God would, in the flesh, interact with this woman what it would be like for God to be among us, how he thinks, how he talks, how he lives, right here in Samaria. All right. She responds uh, with belief. And, and that's, not, that's not strange. He had given her this word of knowledge so she could believe. She, she believes. She runs into the town. She says, hey, come see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? The town comes out. They believe first on her testimony, and then they believe because he stays and he teaches for two days, cultivating in Samaria faith, and the kingdom of God begins to spread. And he gives to them the first I am statement, revealing himself to Samaria. I am, he says. All right, so we got to talk a little bit about what this means for you and for me. Most of the, the time, this is taught, and we immediately want to see ourselves as Jesus, don't we? Can I challenge you just for a minute? I got three points. It's a sermon, uh, and that's how I'm going to do it. All right, I got three points. Uh, the last one is about how we can imitate Jesus, but guess what? Don't rush there in your mind. The first two are about what it's like to be that woman and how you are the woman. Unfulfilled, unclean, uncertain about God in this world. You don't walk with God. You don't have a right to walk with God. You don't just get to do that unless he comes to you as Jesus has. And he bridges that gap and he makes it possible. That's the point. So here, here we're going to, don't rush to Jesus. Like, how, how are you like him? Uh, see yourself in her state for just a minute. And I'm going to start because Jesus was talking to a woman. Ladies, can I have permission to address you first? Please? Yes? I'm going to talk to you first. Ladies, your deepest thirst cannot be quenched by men. That's the first thing to draw out of this story. Your deepest thirst cannot be quenched by men. And some of you, since your very, very early childhood, thought that that was going to be the case. Maybe it was the first time you saw a Disney movie. And, uh, and you began painting this picture in your mind of, okay, my life will be everything it's supposed to be. And I'll be everything I'm supposed to be when my man or beast comes into my life. <laughs> either one, I'll take either. Uh, I'm, like it, I'm hanging in the balance here. Until the right guy comes. You know, and I'm, I'm really nothing until he comes. 
And my soul's unsatisfied until he comes. And I don't mean anything to the world until he comes. And this isn't even worth living my life until he comes. I'm telling you, that's a lie. First of all, let me speak personally. I'm a, I'm a guy. Um, I, I live with me 24 hours a day. I know what it's like to, to be that, to, to hang out with a, with a guy. I'm a decent man. Uh, as far as a husband goes, I'm, I'm okay. I'm a solid B minus or something. Um, I did, I'm like uh, rating myself up here. Um, I'm a seven and a half. Um, I'm all right. And I wouldn't say to my wife, you know, honey, I'm here to fulfill you at the soul level. I couldn't do that. And if she puts the weight of that on me, I'm going to let her down so bad. I'm a guy. I'm just a guy. No man can, can do that. No man can do that. And, and, and men, I'm not letting you off the hook here. Men, your deepest thirst cannot be quenched by, by women. I'm not a companion you've, you've, you've sought. You, you wanted to win her heart. You, you did. Now you're trying to cultivate a good relationship. You've got tickets to Gary Chapman uh, on, on Saturday. And you're working this. Schoolofchristianthought.com, North Boulevard's East Murfreesboro campus. You can sign up, please do. Um, so you're doing your very best, man, you know. But she's not your soul's, she's not going to quench your soul's thirst. Or worse, right? We've worked hard as a society to create like hookup culture now to try to make that a little bit more accessible. So literally there are apps, pray God they're not on your phone, but, but maybe you're hiding something here. And you can swipe left all day long. You can swipe left on that app until your thumb cramps and you will still be thirsty because women won't quench that. Your um, soul's thirst won't be quenched by raising children. Like, please don't put the weight of your soul on a, on a kid and try to have them fulfill the deepest parts of who you are. They can't do it. They can't do it. You're thirsty for Jesus. And to make sure you understand that, Jesus in John 7 attends a festival. And the festival he attends is the festival of um, tabernacles or booths. And it's a really fascinating one because the whole story is how um, Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. How there just weren't springs of water or places for them to get drink until they cried out to God. And God struck this rock through Moses and water came enough to, to, to quench their thirst. They're at the festival in John 7, and it's the last day of the festival. And on the last day of the festival, there's this great demonstration. A man is going to stand. He kind of tells or recaps that history. He takes a large pitcher of water. It's incredibly convenient that this was on the stage. Um, and he pours, he pours out the water in front of the people. And they all marvel at the fact that in a miraculous way, God provided for their thirst. He quenched them. On that last day, it's said from John, an eyewitness of Jesus, that Jesus stood up and he proclaimed something in a loud voice. I love to think that guy had prepared his whole life for this one moment. He prepared all year. Some dude stands up with this picture and that's when Jesus stands up and he steals the moment. And this man's going to pour out the water and Jesus says, no, look at me. I am the water you need. And if, he says, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink and I'll give you the Holy Spirit. 
He steals the moment like, poor guy, worked all year. Um, Didn't even get his chance because Jesus is saying, no, I'm the water you need. And life is still a desert and everything is a mirage except for the water of Jesus Christ. It's not like, it's not like, well, good, we're past the 40 years of wandering in a desert. No, you're still in one and there aren't alternative sources to water except Jesus, the King. I pray you, you know that. You can't find it in a man. You can't find it in a woman. Uh, The second thing I want to point out here is that God wants to touch your wound to heal your wound. She didn't want this to happen. You know the difference between a wound and a scar, right? A a wound hurts to the touch. And you instinctively protect your wound. And she's doing that. She's gone out of her way to draw water in the heat of the day because she doesn't want anybody to touch the wound. It hurts, man. It's sensitive. It's vulnerable. And you ask yourself the question, why would he say, go get your husband? Why touch it if it's not to heal it? I had, um, I had a cyst grow on the side of my face when I was a freshman in high school. And it, you know, there are cysts like you can, you can feel if you rub over the skin, and then there are cysts you can see. They just grow out of control. This one just grew out of control. We were fearful that it was cancerous. It was not at, at all, but it grew right in front of my ear, and it grew to such a large size. You can laugh at what I'm about to say. You're not going to bully me if you laugh. It grew to such a large size that I got the nickname at school, Hey Arnold, because that was a cartoon of a guy with a misshaped head. It was very sensitive. It was very vulnerable. I didn't want anyone to touch it. I grew my hair out long because I didn't even want my barber to be around this thing on my face. A lady at church, Sunday morning, just like this. Uh, her, her name was Cindy. I loved her. She's like a second mother to me. She saw my hair was getting longer. And all she did, poor Cindy, man, all she did was reach out to just tuck my hair behind my ear. But the wound... When she reached her hand forward, I grabbed her arm and I reared my fist at Cindy right in church. Didn't even know what I was doing. I was so close to punching Cindy in the face at church because no one touches a wound. It it hurts. You know, a week later after this incident, I go and I do let somebody touch it. He's a surgeon. He gets down and he, he gets at the root of the cyst. Unfortunately, he didn't even go deep enough. The next year, it grew back. He said, you know why it grew back? Because I was afraid. It, the root of the cyst was wrapped around your optic nerve. I didn't want to make you go blind. So it grows back. Next year, he goes back. And with laser precision, in my head, near my brain, near my optic nerve, he cuts at the root of the cyst. So that now I can preach and no one's going to call me, hey, Arnold, while I preach. <laughs> you have to let Jesus do that. We are walking with God. And you say, how closely? Way too close for comfort. That's how close. And he comes too close for comfort because he wants to heal you. Where do the streams of living water come from? Well, the Holy Spirit. But do you know how they enter your life? They always enter your life through your darkest secrets and your deepest wounds. If you'll let God have it. I wonder if you've ever prayed this prayer. It's the prayer of David. This is how you walk with God. Search me, God. David, pray, search me, know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The difference between your relationship or mine with Mitch Schilling and with God is that I've read Mitch's profile. I never let him read mine. Don't make that mistake with God. 
Open it all up. Say everything. Share everything. Don't hide the thing you're trying to hide. Number three, final implication. A walk with God always includes a walk to Samaria. It's our third implication. I don't know where you are hoping to go on your walk with God. Some of us were just so sure he's going to walk alongside us, but we're going we're to decide where. We're going to decide to who. We'll decide when we go. We kind of say to him, hey, I've got lots of goals for my life. I'd love to have you beside me. You help me a lot. But God says, I have to go to Samaria. Where is the unfulfilled, unclean, uncertain person? There you will find me, and I must go. I don't know where you thought you were going to walk, but, but it always includes a walk to Samaria. Let me be a little bit vague about what Samaria might mean to you today. Samaria is a place of great need, or it's a person of great need, but it's a great risk to you. It's a great risk to you because you could risk your comfort. You certainly will risk your comfort. You could risk your reputation. You could risk your finances. You could risk your safety. You could risk your dreams in life. On the road to Samaria, your dreams die and God's dreams are born in you. On the road to Samaria, your concerns for self die and God's compassion is born in you. Your prejudice dies. Your racism dies. And God's love is born in you. I... Um, I Samaria means so many things, right? Where, where, where is he trying to go? Samaria, I think, is somebody you didn't have in your plans, but God had on his heart. That, that might be Samaria. I remember um, a season of life where we were more diligent than we are now, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that, but Kristen and I enjoyed the evenings of reading and praying the Bible together. And we would just talk about what we were learning. We were asking ourselves a question, what would it look like for us to enter into real suffering in this world and make an impact? We were reading and praying and reading and praying. I come into the space. It was the sunroom while we were living in East Tennessee. I come into our space. She's already sitting there reading and praying, eager for me to come home that evening. We didn't have any children at the time. So but if you don't have children, take advantage of it. Um, it can get interrupted later. Um, she looks up at me as I walk into the room and she says, Honey, I think the Holy Spirit is putting something on my heart. The Holy Spirit's asking that we become a foster and adoptive family. I said, um, have I told you today how beautiful you look, baby? She said, we're not doing that right now. We're not. She said, I'm serious. I'm serious. She could tell I wasn't experiencing the same thing. So she went to her prayer closet for two weeks, and she prayed one of the most courteous, wise prayers I've ever heard anybody pray. She said, God, do you remember January 8, 2011, you made us a one-flesh union if you're going to call me, call us. Speak to us. We're one flesh. Two weeks she's praying. I come into that sunroom one evening after work. I walk right in, convicted by the Holy Spirit. I said, honey, I believe God is calling us to be a foster adoptive family. She said, that's the best idea you've had since I married you. <laughs> she said, that's my idea. Uh, we've learned a lot. Along the way, our first foster care placement eventually became an adoptive placement. And if you know my family, you understand that's the story of our oldest son. There's so much we've learned. One thing that we learned very early on in the journey is that God walks to people no one else is walking to. And he talks to people that no one else is talking to. And he loves people no one else is noticing or loving. 
we also learned that there is a lot of space around the table of, of foster care and adoption. You can become a foster or adoptive family. They call it resource uh, parents. You can support foster and adoptive families. You can support caseworkers. I'm telling you all of this because it lines up with at least an option for walking to Samaria, but it's also Orphan Sunday, and we're, we're kind of highlighting an orphan team, I mean a ministry team, our orphan care ministry team here at North Boulevard. You can go out in the lobby um, at either campus and meet with that team. It's not the only Samaria, but it's, it's a version of that. Somebody God has on his heart, but you might not have had in your plans. I will see you on the road to Samaria, whatever that road looks like for you and your family. You know, the big difference between um, my relationship with God and my quote-unquote relationship with Mitch Schilling, uh, the next plan Mitch has with his family is to go to an Oklahoma City Thunder basketball game. They like that team. They're going to the game. He's got friends going to the game. I'm not going to the game. I don't, I'm not even going to watch the game on TV. I don't care about the Oklahoma City Thunder. But wherever God's going next, I want to be there. That's the difference. And I plan to walk with him. Let's walk together. Let's walk with God. Would you guys stand up? Let's worship our God. Let's begin to walk with him in this series. God bless you.